Oh, aren't we? Quarter past, we're getting more programming. Okay, we'll just hang on for a second. It's about faith and development. So you're not on the right session. We're about to lose you, are we now? <laughs> yeah. Good job we haven't started. <laughs> Thanks to you, we haven't started. This is to remind. Yeah. <laughs> My very first um, public engagement for Christian Aid was with the Baptist Union of Great Britain at their annual assembly. And uh, the, the, the audience was gathering, and, um, but not very many. And a lady came and sat in the front row, and I thought, calm my own nerves, I'll go and say hello to her. So I said, hello, <laughs> I'm Loretta from Christian Aid. And she said, am I in the right place for encountering Islam? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, probably not. No, that's that's I, I lost my audience almost straight away. <laughs> Feels a bit similar, but deja vu. So, for the time being, it's better for us to leave the door open. Um, let me um, offer you welcome. I was going to say warm welcome. It's a bit cool in this room, but yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll make it warm together. But a huge welcome to you this morning, and thank you for joining us uh, for this time. What well, we hope will be information and reflection and a little bit of sharing together. Uh, with us this morning is uh, Loretta Minghella, I'm going to introduce her in a moment, and Chantelle Daniel who is the um, Policy and Advocacy Officer for Central Africa. And we'll hear from Chantelle a little later. So let me introduce our main speaker this morning. 
Loretta Minghella is a trained lawyer who began career, her career in financial regulations in 1990. The first head of enforcement law policy, International Cooperation for the Financial Services Authority. She also chaired a standing committee on enforcement and information sharing. In 2004, Loretta became chief executive of the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, in which she oversaw a payment of over £21 billion compensated back to victims of banks and other financial failures. In April 2010, Loretta joined Christian Aid as its executive director. She, she leads our involvement in AFRADEV, which is a group of 17 European church-related development agencies. And as a member of the British Overseas Aid Group, BOAG, and also the Disaster Emergency Committee. Please put your hands together for Loretta Minghella. Good morning, everyone. Those of you who've stayed in the room, very grateful to see you all here. Um, and thank you for choosing this particular seminar about the difference faith makes to development. I hope to help you over the next um, uh, half an hour or so just get to grips with what is the Christian in Christian aid and, and leave you to form a bit of your own view about whether that makes a positive difference to the development work that we do. But before I get stuck in, um, can I say a few words briefly about my own background? As Dion said, I used to be a financial services lawyer and my journey to Christian Aid is quite an unusual one for a development agency CEO. It's a story of love, money, and death, which makes it sound a bit like an airport novel, so I will <laughs> unpack it a little bit. The love part is very simply the love of God. Uh, in the spring of 2002, I found myself one ordinary Sunday morning in a church in South London, a reasonably calm and quiet Church of England church in a reasonably calm and quiet London suburb, some might even say a sort of stiff upper lip sort of place. There I was, a lapsed Catholic and a card-carrying agnostic, happily married to an atheist, as I still am, visiting there almost by accident. And without any warning, without hearing voices or winds or tongues of fire, I was disarmed in an instant by an overwhelming sense of peace and joy. And since then, in good times and in bad, and there have been some very bad times, I've always felt that God is very close by. The money bit was, uh, was you know, uh, scarcely less extraordinary. The evening of the 27th of September 2008, as you can tell, engraved on my memory, I found myself not just short of cash, but short of £14 billion in cash. So I arranged to borrow it, as you do, when you're short of that amount of cash on a Saturday night from the Bank of England. They kindly lent it to me, or more precisely to the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, of which I was then CEO. And on the Monday, we arranged for it to be given to Abbey Santander so that they would take on and look after the customers of Bradford and Bingley, whose bank had, unbeknownst to them, gone bust uh, during the day. And instead of feeling pleased to have done my job, I thought then what an indictment it was that as a society we could find our way to borrowing £14 billion on a Saturday night if we wanted to do something urgent and important. 
but wasn't the fact that so many hundreds of millions of people were going hungry in the world also desperately urgent and important to solve. The death part was more personal. In March 2008, I lost my brother, Anthony. He was a writer and director. His most successful film, The English Patient, won nine Oscars and ensured his place in Hollywood's history books. But that's not why I miss him, why I missed him. I miss him for his irreplaceability. His death brought home to me how every person has their own unique beauty, which is irreplaceable. And that illuminated for me the Christian belief that every person is made in God's image. And out of that moment of personal crisis came a much stronger sense of what really matters and a profound desire to reorientate my life so that my work spoke much more directly to my faith and to addressing the needs of those who are most vulnerable. Hence, two years later, I'd left the city and moved to my present role, running Christian Aid. That's three years ago now. And it's an absolute joy to put my faith in the middle of my work every day for such a crucial cause. So that's enough of me. Now let's take a look, a closer look at Christian Aid. It's a development agency with deep roots in the churches of Britain and Ireland. We came into being as a result of church leaders being emotionally affected by the situation that refugees in Europe found themselves in at the end of the Second World War. And that compassion for the poor and disadvantaged emanated from their Christian faith and their Christian values. The emerging organization was part of the British Council of Churches, and today Christian Aid is sponsored by 41 denominations within Britain and Ireland. Annually, the organization is held to account by these churches, and as such, we see ourselves as the development agency of those churches, and we have a vision of a world without poverty. I don't know if you've seen extreme poverty close up. In my very first visit to the Christian Aid to Kenya in 2010, I found myself sitting in a slum hut near Nairobi with Evelyn, a woman in the most dire poverty who had run out of cash, desperate for cash. She needed it for her two nephews, too weak with hunger to walk to school, and for the burial of her father, lying next to her, nearly very close to the end not enough cash to live, not enough cash to die. In fact, Evelyn was contemplating trading her virginity to raise the money to bury him. I asked her what kept her going, and she said her faith kept her going, and she thanked God each morning that he had brought her and her family through the night and that they would see another day. The question for me is, does having a Christian foundation make us a better or worse development agency? And what difference does it make for people like Evelyn? Is Christianity actually good news to the poor? Well, Christianity seemed to me then and seems to be now to be very good news, especially for those in poverty. That's not so surprising, is it? In the Gospel according to Luke, Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And his, as his followers, Christians are called to follow his example 
so surely Christians must also be good news to the poor. So how come? When there have been Christians for over 2,000 years now, and today there may be perhaps 2 billion of us on the planet, poverty hasn't been eradicated. Religious faith has often been considered, in fact, to have had a negative impact in international development, a tool of oppression. What's behind that? There's been suspicion that those offering development assistance have ulterior motives, abusing their position of power in order to proselytize giving physical comfort only as a means to an end. The suspicion has also been that some religious leaders have used their influence to strengthen the hold and influence of their particular brand of religion, or worse still, to line their own pockets or for their own self-aggrandisement. This is not all fanciful. Many atrocities have been committed and many wars fought in the name of religion. And take the practices of slavery and apartheid, both of which were at one time strongly defended by Christians with one hand on the Bible. Even today, some religious groups don't have a good track record, for example, on gender equality. All these things do nothing to promote religion as a source of peace and justice. However, as the DFID, uh, Department for International Development Faith Partnership Principles report said last year, in many countries and for many people, faith and religion are central to development. Most people in developing countries engage in some form of a religious practice on a regular basis that enables them to understand and relate to the world. There's been a renaissance of faith in many countries. In sub-Saharan Africa, since 1900, the proportion of Christians has increased from 9% to 57%, and Muslims from 14% to 29%. In virtually all developing countries, faith and religion have grown in importance over the past two decades. And Diffid says, it's therefore important to acknowledge the presence and influence of faith within the countries where development agencies are working. But to understand the really positive potential of faith, I think we need to take a deeper look at the nature of poverty. Because we live in a world of unprecedented wealth, and yet despite all our technological advances and the vast resources at our disposal, the scourge of extreme poverty remains humanity's most pressing challenge. It's not just that tonight one in eight will go to bed hungry. It's not just that 1.4 billion people live on less than $1.25 a day. It's not just that 3 million children will die this year because of hunger and malnutrition. Because painting that kind of picture of absolute poverty risks presenting an oversimplified problem. We could end up saying, oh, it's sad that these people don't have enough money, enough to eat, they don't have the right vaccinations or antibiotics, we'll just send them all of that and then that will sort them out. But no, our resources, financial or otherwise, can certainly help, but they won't fix the problem on their own because a lack of money and a lack of stuff is generally not the cause of poverty, but more its expression. Let's have a look at some of the statistics, because 20 years ago, the majority of poor people lived in poor countries, and that makes sense, doesn't it? But it's not how it is today, because today, of those people that I said, 1.4 billion people living on $1.25 a day, 75% of those people live in middle-income countries like Brazil, and like India. It's inequality which is the key driver of poverty. And the large majority, perhaps as many as 70% of the people that I've spoken about living in extreme poverty are women and girls, telling us that gender inequality is one of the key drivers of poverty that international development needs to tackle. 
But gender isn't the only issue, because poverty continues to be fueled by discrimination of other kinds, inequality on the grounds of race, caste, color, uh, religion, and sexuality. Our approach to poverty at Christian Aid is based on our understanding of poverty as at its heart an issue about a lack of power. And I'm not talking about sociological phenomena, I'm talking about real people with real and serious pain, the chronic pain of marginalization which aid alone cannot relieve. The story is not all bleak, so let's begin to pick up on some of the good news. Because many organizations like Christian Aid have been around for decades now, in our case, since the end of the Second World War, as I mentioned, and since then much has been achieved. Life expectancy in developing countries has risen on average by 20 years. Child mortality has more than halved. Access to clean water has doubled. The causes of this progress are many, and economic growth, medical advances, and aid programs have played major roles. Christian Aid alone raises over £90 million a year for international development, most of it from members of the public, uh, most of it from supporters who are active Christians. 80% of our supporters or thereabouts are active Christians, and they can take a genuine share of the credit for some of this progress. You will have noticed our volunteers during Christian Aid Week. Indeed, maybe some people here are volunteers during Christian Aid Week. It's such an inspiring act of Christian witness, especially in these challenging times, a time when thousands upon thousands of our supporters from all over Britain and Ireland volunteer to take to the streets, go door to door, collecting for our work. They raised around £9 million last year, around 10% of our overall income just knocking on the doors. But it's not just that they've raised the money, it's also that they've campaigned for improvements to the lives of those in poverty, and those campaigning supporters have changed the fortunes of millions and millions of people. I'll come back to that later. So there's real good news here. Christians putting their faith into action are helping to change the world. Of course, as we all know, our economic models uh, have proved themselves to be unsustainable now, haven't they, with catastrophic consequences, and we're in a desperate scramble to redesign them well. The impact here in the UK is all around us, but the impact on those in poverty in developing countries has been particularly harsh. What does Christianity have to say which is relevant to all this? I want to go back to where I started, to the analysis I offered about poverty, that it's about a lack of power and uh, it's about marginalisation. Current economic models in countries like the UK can accommodate a significant degree of poverty. Those models can thrive when enough people have enough, regardless of the, um, the, the people who are left behind. And Christianity is, of course, a faith. It's not an economic model, but it takes such a different starting point. It pivots on the idea that, as we read in Genesis, every person is made in the image of God. That's the driving principle behind our work, why we fight poverty for all people, why we work with for uh, and, and through people of all faiths and none, regardless of race, color, or anything else, because we're all made in the image of God. I do not matter more or less than you. You do not matter more or less than anyone else here or in any other country, whatever your relative wealth or political or social standing. And St. Paul, Paul put it this way, no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free. 
male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is, of course, the role model for everyone who calls themselves a Christian, and his habit and his preference was to spend the time with those on the margins, prostitutes, tax collectors, the blind, the sick. Jesus taught on the day of judgment, God will ask each person what they did to help the poor and needy. I say to you, whatever you did for one of these least brothers of mine, you did for me. By what he did and what he said, Jesus showed us what was expected of his followers, the call to go to the margins, to the people there at the margins to welcome them in and to attend to their needs. I only have enough if you have enough. Your being at the margins means I must go there. God, as human in the person of Lord Jesus Christ, started his life at the margins as a vulnerable baby, born in occupied territory in a stable far from home. We stand in solidarity with those who are similarly vulnerable. All made in the image of God and of one family. To love others without discrimination is our duty and our joy. And in the fourth gospel, we hear Jesus say, if we keep the commandments, God will come to us and make his home in us. We're called into relationship with God, expressed through our relationship with, an, with one another. And this is absolutely at the core of our understanding at Christian Aid of who we are and who we are called to be. And that's why our strategy, which we launched last year, is called Partnership for Change, because we must achieve change through relationship, and that's the only kind of change which we believe in. And I'd want to show you now a little film that tells you a little bit about what Partnership for Change looks like in practice. So thank you very much, Jim. to be louder. <coughs> Try again. Churches from the UK and Ireland united to respond to a desperate refugee crisis of this year. Soon after, Christian Aid was founded. Now, in 2012, we went behind just as new strategies, partnership for change, the power to end poverty. It has really taught me to help marginalised or excluded people feel themselves as citizens. Our strategy has grown to be a changing world. A world in which advances in medicine, agriculture, science and technology mean that we now have the greatest opportunity to overcome poverty. Yet the will to share these resources with the poorest people on our planet our goal is to bring people of all faiths and minds together to change the way that power is served and to transform our unjust world. Ours is the wealthiest generation in human history, but it's also the most talented. In 2012, it's too simple to see the world as a wealthy elite in a poverty-stricken town. Today, 
Entonces la resultante fue llamada en concurso. En el siglo XIX, en 
um, Policy and Advocacy Officer for the Great Lakes Region, will give you an insight into our work in the Democratic Republic of Congo with the churches there. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Loretta and Christine, for allowing me to speak. And today I will try to give you a little bit more insight in how we work with faith communities as well as with churches in the Democratic Republic of Congo. To start off, because I know that a lot of people do not have uh, a full insight in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It has not been in the news, such as Mali, uh, Syria, or Afghanistan. But the Democratic Republic of Congo, I will now call it Congo because otherwise I spend most of my time in explaining the abbreviation, is in the middle of Africa. It's in the heart of Africa, surrounded by nine countries that are all have a problematic past, such as Angola, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, and so on, Chad, uh, Central African Republic. It's one of the biggest countries in Africa and it has had a very troubled past. Uh, colonized by Belgium, the DRC became independent in 1960. And since that moment, conflict, instability, and war has characterized the country and its development. It's potentially one of the richest countries in the world. It has a vast majority of national resources, gold, coltan, but also water and forest. However, almost 80% of its population live below the poverty line. It's officially a post-conflict country, and one can say that, indeed, the west of the country is relatively stable. However, the eastern part of the country is still characterized by continuous conflict and instability. This does not mean that the west of the country is going perfectly fine. Widespread corruption is still characterizing the country, as well as poverty. Security is often in the hands of armed groups or a non-paid army or non-paid police. So in that, to that extent, there is absolutely no accountability of the government towards its population, and there is very little trust in the institutions that we normally trust. One of the people in Eastern DRC once told me, Chantal, when you're afraid, you go to the police. We grew up learning that the police or the army are the people you stay as far away from as possible. And actually, there is something that attaches all of us to Congo. One would never say that, but just have a good look at your phone and think about where this phone consists of. There is a mineral that is in your phone, which is called Colton, which comes from Congo. So Congo is not just a world far away. Congo is with all of us. And that is also one of the reasons why we should care about Congo. Instability in Congo will, in the end, affect our development of technology, our means of communication, and that is why we should take this into account. Well, Christian Aid has been working in Congo since 1970. We started off working mainly with faith communities and church organizations. But since 1990, we have been working also with secular organizations to ensure that our impact on the ground is where it is needed. We work with and through faith communities as well as with civil society. Our key role is, as Loretta already mentioned, 
not working for them, but working with them and supporting them where necessary. We provide humanitarian assistance on the ground through civil society organizations to ensure that their impact is as long-lasting as possible. Well, how do we work with different uh, churches in uh, Congo? Well, in the DRC, as everyone probably knows, especially in many African countries, church networks stretch throughout communities. The church is a central part of communities in places where the national government, but also development organizations such as Christian Aid often do not have any access. It's one of these institutions that is a part of everyday life for the majority of the population. It's most of the time even the only institution that is trusted, especially if there is zero trust in the government and if there is often no access by other communities. If your life is in the hands of different armed groups and you have to survive on a daily basis, then most of the time churches provide the only trust and hope that one will ever see. They're present in areas where we do not come, and especially in a context of extreme poverty, instability, and conflict, churches and other local faith institutions are often the only local institution that provide a basic infrastructure, provide basic services, and serving the community. They're full of dedicated people driven by their faith to serve others, and they're there every day of the week, not just on Sundays, and they fill the gap that is left by the government. With Christian Aid, we have been working on three crucial elements through, uh, through churches. I could now explain the humanitarian assistance that we have been providing, but humanitarian assistance is something that is a plaster on the wounds. As Loretta already said, we try to tackle the roots of poverty. We try to tackle the roots of conflict. And that is why I will be explaining three elements that we have been working on, which are elections, combating sexual and gender-based violence, as well as reform of the national security services. In Congo, churches remain a part of civil society that is the closest with the population. If one would ask around which institutions people trust the most, most of the people would actually say the church, because they have not yet disappointed us, they have not left us alone, they have always been there. And with that, a lot of people actually mean the Catholic Church because that is the largest church in Congo. During the 2006 and 2011 elections, uh, which were in 2006, these were the first democratic elections held in Congo ever, the churches played a really big role. There was barely any money for civic education. There was barely any money to ensure that the population actually knew what elections were and what the impact of elections would be and why they would have to vote and how to vote. And thus, that was a gap that was covered by the churches. The churches having a network throughout the country worked on raising, raising awareness with a population that had been confronted with dictatorial uh, regimes with conflict on what it meant to have elections and what that would could mean in the future and why they should vote and what kind of an accountability should come along with that. Of course, it's a very basic step and it has never been enough, but it is a very crucial role that was played by churches and not by any other organization. In the 2011 elections, the second partly democratic elections, churches 
continued this work. However, unfortunately, um, elections didn't go as everyone expected. The population was again confronted with a president that they felt they didn't vote for, and this still continues at this moment. There is a lot of uh, contesting about whether the government in the DRC is absolutely democratically elected or whether it's really representing its population. And that is why uh, the role of churches in raising awareness of the local population, in trying to give them a voice in local communities, in trying to raise their capacity and building up local capacities of expressing themselves is of utmost importance to ensure that Democracy also comes from below and not just from an elected president that one votes for once in a year or once in four years. And that is also why it is important that election, the electoral calendar in the DRC continues, that people do not only vote for a president but also for their local MPs to ensure that they feel better represented. With regard to sexual and gender-based violence, as I already said before, Churches are one of the key organizations that provide basic services. Hospitals throughout the country are very scarce. Access to many of the territories is absent. Having traveled throughout Congo quite a lot, already 70 kilometers might take you four hours or even more. So just imagine how difficult it is for survivors of sexual violence to have access to services. So therefore, the role that churches play in providing medical and psychosocial assistance to survivors of sexual violence is of utmost importance. However, churches can do much more because, as I said before, we try not to put the plaster on the wound, but we actually try to prevent sexual violence. And that is where a crucial role of churches come in. Through its outreach, churches can actually work on prevention and protection of sexual violence by raising awareness throughout communities on gender relations, how men relate to women and women relate to men and what is accepted and what is not, but also in preventing stigmatization with regard to sexual violence, setting up local protection networks, ensuring that a dialogue takes place with the different alleged perpetrators of sexual violence and how to prevent this. And that is a crucial role that churches can play and do play in Congo which is, as many knew, called the rape capital of the world. I, I do not want to express anything in numbers, but I can't even explain how grave the impact is on a population. A woman or a girl that is raped is often thrown out of community, and through that is destroying whole networks. How can a population be resilient? How can a population in the end be asking for democracy, for development, if communities are disrupted by something that is called sexual and gender-based violence? The last issue I'm going to discuss is uh, the reform of the national police and the national army. As I've just said, many people run away from the army or the police instead of seeing them as one of the most trustworthy people you can turn to, someone that is there to help you. The DRC has a history in which its armed forces actually protect a small elite instead of protect its population. Actually, the National Army is one of the gravest uh, human rights abusers that one can actually imagine. And therefore, a reform of these structures is necessary. The churches have played a really big role in this, not by being very vocal about the abuses of the army or the abuses of the police, but by 
very silently discussing the situation of conflict in the eastern part of the country, discussing the role of the army and how it should look like, and trying to express the voice of the population towards politicians that in the end can make the final decision how to reform the army and how to ensure that the voice of the population and how this should look like and how their protection should be guaranteed is going to look like. Thank you very much. To, it's great to hear from an expert, even a taller one than me, <coughs> um, about a, a really troubled region where the voice of the church is, is so respected. Um, and I, I've just come back from Malawi, actually, just a, a, a month or so ago, and um, I saw the way churches are listened to there, um, which, is, which is quite typical, actually, of, of many places in sub-Saharan Africa in relation to HIV. Um, in the northern part of Malawi is 80% Christian, 15% Muslim, and 5% other. Um, so the churches have a very, very big presence. In the northern part of Malawi, I visited communities where working with uh, Evangelical Association of Malawi and uh, organizations associated with them, we've been able to bring messages about HIV to communities in a way that they can finally learn what it's really all about and how to protect themselves and how to get treatment and so on because they will listen to church leaders who will talk to them about these very sensitive issues. And if, if a church leader says to you, HIV is a virus, it's not a sin, the stigma's the sin, all of a sudden that is transformational for people. They can begin to listen, they can begin to take up the resources that are available to them to protect themselves and to protect each other. Uh, so this is the, the power of churches. But we believe that uh, God is for everyone. We work through with people of all faiths and none, uh, and that takes us into places where the churches don't have the same sort of reach. Um, it's often dangerous for us to work in, in those places, especially if you're uh, an organization that doesn't hide your, your Christian faith. We've got Christian in the name. It's a bit of a giveaway. Um, but we do work in, in countries like Afghanistan, where it is dangerous to be a Christian uh, development organization. Uh, there's real need there. We are sometimes respected by partners, even though they are not Christian, they may be Muslim partners, because they know who we are and what we stand for, and they trust us to be those people. And they, they understand that, you know, actually, uh, they, they recognize a lot of the values that we talk about, even if they don't share our beliefs. And I wanted to show you a very, very short film that gives you an insight into our work in Afghanistan with non-Christian partners there. Ten years ago, when Operation Afghanistan began, the 
So there you see some of our work with, with non-church partners and you see how we work at the local level on local livelihoods, at the national level supporting people, supporting in this case women to have their voices heard in Parliament. And we work at the international level too because there are some things that we cannot address by local action or national action in country that need to be changed at the international level. And that's where I come to campaigning. Christian Aid is very well known for its campaigning work, campaigning for justice for those in poverty whose problems can't be addressed at the local and national level. We're asking policymakers internationally to bring to their policymaking the kind of values which we hope that they will share, even if they don't share our Christian beliefs. And in campaigning for justice, we're following Jesus' example. We're speaking up for those in poverty. The way he reminded those around him of what really matters, that's what we're trying to do. We hear echoes in the words in Proverbs 31. Speak out for those who cannot speak, for the rights of all the destitute. Speak out, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. When it comes to campaigning, there's been a brilliant opportunity this year to get involved by supporting the IF campaign, and the issues in the IF campaign continue. So I want to just spend two minutes before we, we break open for a bit more discussion, just um, highlighting the issues in the IF campaign and hoping that if you haven't already been involved in it, you'll be encouraged now uh, to get involved in the issues. So what's it been about? Why has it already been um, uh, successful, but why has it got more to go? Well, as you know, the last week, the G8 came together, brings together the heads of eight of the most powerful uh, nations in the world. And this year, it's been the UK's turn to be in the chair. So we had a unique opportunity uh, to take the lead in real um, uh, pleas for justice. And in January, we joined forces in, a, in, a, in this IF campaign jointly with Oxfam Save the Children and about 70 other agencies at that time. But by the time we got to the G8 last week, 200 agencies had join, joined our coalition. Our key message has been the world has enough food for everyone, but not everyone has enough food. And millions of people die every year directly as a result of hunger and malnutrition, but we can be the generation to end this if we make bold decisions now. And that's why we called it the Enough Food If campaign or the If campaign for short. We focused on four key requests uh, to international governments that one, they should keep their promises on aid and climate finance to invest in the simple and effective things that will stop children being malnourished and that will empower small-scale farmers to grow enough nutritious food. 
two, that they should act now to end the grabbing of land in poor countries, which has been um, uh, driving up food pri prices and pushing people off the land. Three, that they should demand transparency by government, more transparency by governments and companies to enable citizens to hold them to account and ensure that resources are well used to help people in poverty. And four, that they should help developing countries collect the tax that is owed to them, um, which is presently dodged by unscrupulous companies. Improving tax transparency would make it harder for that money to be hidden in tax havens. Instead, it could be funding developing country governments to boost farming, nutrition, other essential services like education and healthcare. Now, Christian Aid, when it started campaigning on tax in 2008, everyone thought we were a bit balmy, a bit left field. Um, nobody else was working on tax as a development issue, and now tax is absolutely a mainstream development issue. We estimated then, and we continue to believe, that developing countries lose about $160 billion a year in tax dodging, which is more than they receive in aid. They lose more in tax dodging than they receive in aid. And that it seems to me to be a scandal and a nonsense. Uh, on the 8th of June, 45,000 people rallied in Hyde Park in support of the IF campaign. And governments here and other governments have responded uh, by committing £2.7 billion additional money to tackle malnutrition. Um, the following weekend in Belfast, mo thousands more rallied. Church services here in Westminster and in Enniskillen gathered Christians from all over Britain and Ireland to pray for the G8 outcomes. We were able, with our coalition counterparts, to present and speak to hundreds of thousands of signatures of support for our position on the campaign issues. And when it comes to rallying real people, as opposed to signatures on petitions, 